All right. So if you guys are new with us here, I'm sorry. We are in the book of Revelation. And we are like, we're like right in the middle of it all. And so if you are confused at all, if you don't know the context behind this, because Revelation is arguably the hardest book to understand in the Bible. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can come ask me questions afterwards. We are looking at Revelation chapter 14, where we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. I've titled this message, Whom Do You Worship? Because I have to be grammatically correct. Whom do you worship? In chapter 14, this chapter, it, it serves as an important question. It's asking yourself, what direction are you heading towards? Where is your life going? You see, throughout Revelation, we can get lost. And we can get lost in the book itself, right? All the imagery of all the symbolism. With, 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 we, just, we just covered about, you know, this beast coming from the sea. The sand's also mystical. We get lost within the story, and sometimes we need to come back and see how it truly applies to us. See how it truly impacts our lives today. And so, what direction are you heading towards? Where is your life going? And to answer that question, we first have to come back down to a more basic question, which is the title for this message. Whom do you worship? Because everything is about worship. You were created to worship. And it all comes down to this because as we look upon the book of Revelation, it is focused, dead center upon your heart, upon whom you will worship for your life. You see, this book of Revelation, we've been teaching this book as, as future events, that these are events yet to come, yet to happen, that these are... These are coming, they're coming to this, and they will happen. And yes, this book is about the future, but it's more than just about the future of this world. The book of Revelation is about your future, beyond your career path, beyond the person you're going to marry, beyond whatever you may be hoping for, whatever you may be dreaming for. This book is about your future. It's all related and dependent upon whom you worship. We just covered chapters 12 and 13. Um, in chapters 12 to 13, just to kind of recap for us, catch us or catch us up to, we covered the unholy trinity, right? We have the, the dragon, whom we come to know as Satan, right? We saw that in chapter 12. We, we see here that the dragon here is Satan. Then in chapter 13, we get introduced to the beast, a beast that comes out of the sea, and this beast is it says to have a mortal wound and yet is still alive. And so everyone is marveled at this piece. And we said that this piece is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist here, an image of this piece is built, and the people worship this image. And then there's another beast, another beast that not that didn't come out of the sea, but came out of the earth. And this beast here, what it does, it points people. It was deceiving people. It was saying, hey, worship the first beast. Worship this Antichrist. Worship this image. Obviously, he's not, he's not comes up the Antichrist, but that's what worse this Bible describes him as. And, and so what we see here, we see here the unholy trinity. Right? We have Satan. We have 
the first piece, we have the second piece, and if they're on one side, on the other side, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it seems like at this point of the story, of this point in Revelation 13, at the end of it, Satan and his followers are winning. It's, it is, we see here that the world is under their control, that the people are deceived or worshiping the beast. Believers are being killed. They're being plucked off one by one. So what's going to happen with God's people? What's going to happen with God's kingdom? Chapter 14 shows us this. It shows us that God's people is not just, they're not just being killed. I mean, it shows us that though God's people are being killed, they're not being destroyed. That even in their death, Christians, the church, believers, their song will continue to echo for eternity. And so the focus here comes back to God and his plan. God and his people. And we will see here in these first 13 verses a contrast between the worshipers of the beast and the worshipers of the lamb. And the question will come back down to, for you, whom do you worship? This sermon, how I'm going to do it is I'm going to just read through the passage and I'm going to break it down as I read through it. We'll read through it slowly. Um, and then we'll come back Come back and we're going to take a higher overview look upon the whole passage itself. We're going to pull out pieces. And I'm going to show you different ways that this, this passage connects. And then we'll come back and we'll apply this passage more to why is this relevant? Both for the church during this time when the Apostle John was writing this revelation and to us as well. So let's go ahead and read this passage. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14. I'll have it up here on the screen as well, because I'm going to be highlighting, underlining some words for us. Here, Revelation chapter 14, it says, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Stop there. What we see here, verse that John, as after he saw, again, the dragon, the two beasts, John now looks and says, and says here that on Mount Zion stood the lamb. And the lamb here returns. You guys remember the lamb? He was, the lamb was mentioned back, man, I don't know how long ago. But it, was, it was definitely before all this stuff was happening. You remember the lamb who broke the seals? Who started this whole tribulation period that we've been reading about? He's back. And here the lamb stands on Mount Zion. And Mount Zion here, there's different interpretation of what Mount Zion is. Uh, traditionally, in the Jewish mind, Mount Zion, people, they would immediately think is Jerusalem. Right? And so that is their capital, their holy city. But is that what John sees here? Because we, we've been teaching that Revelation, the book of Revelation, was written in around AD 90. 1898, somewhere around there, which means the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's gone. So what is John seeing here? Well, there's several interpretations of this. First, Mount Zion can be simply a symbol that represents God's people. It's God's holy city, and that's where God's people live. Or you can take it as a heavenly Jerusalem, that John looked into heaven, he saw a heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, which is a counterpart to the earthly one. 
Or John was looking to the future, and what he saw was an earthly Jerusalem that was restored. And maybe perhaps is restored. Right now, Jerusalem has been indeed their decision to exist, but then the ruins of the temple and all that old Jewish system is still, they're still in ruins. So it hasn't been fully restored. So you can look at, you interpret those different ways. I take it as most likely both a heavenly Jerusalem, because we will see later in Revelation that this heavenly Jerusalem does come down. It does, but at the same time, the heavenly Jerusalem is also described as the bride of Christ, which we know to be the church. So it's also a symbol for God's people. Right, so, so kind of a little bit of both the first two interpretations. But we see here that on Mount Zion, whatever church you have, stood the Lamb. Stood the Lamb whom we know to be Christ. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 144,000. This we saw back in chapter 7 of Revelation. 144,000. These were the 12 tribes of Israel, each tribe containing 12,000 people. So coming out to 144,000, 12 tribes of Israel, fully restored. Uh, and you again, this 144,000, you can take it one of your ways. You can hear thinking of this as literal Israel being restored Jewish believers. We can think it represents all believers. I believe this is actually describing Israel, but Israel is leading all the believers through this time. So it's in a way a sense of both. We're talking about the head. Talking about Drew, talking about Israel being the leader of the church or of God's people, not, not church, church and Israel, separate things. And so, again, if that's all that confusing, I'm not going to cover all that. You can talk to me afterwards. And then we get here that this 144,000, we just we just simply say these are the saints. All right, just to make it simple, these are the saints, and they had his name. So, this is the Lamb's name, right? This is the Lamb's name and his father's name written on their foreheads. In other words, they were like branded cattle. It's, it, I don't know how that, how that works. It's just on their foreheads, it has their name. I, I mean, we can, we can take that literally if you want and think that we're gonna walk around with Jesus' names on our head. Or I believe this is simply symbolic, meaning this is just a mark, a mark of how we identify ourselves. A mark of how we identify ourselves. And this is a contrast a contrast to those who are marked by the name of the beast, which we saw at the end of chapter 13. At the end of chapter 13, it tells us in verse 16 that all who, all who uh, worship the beast, they will be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, and they'll be marked with the name of the beast or the number of his name, and we know this number to be 666. And so we have here a contrast between those who are marked with this lamb's name, his father's name, and those who are marked with the name of peace. Again, this is talking about who do you identify with? In other words, whom do you worship? Moving on to verse 2. Verse 2 here reads, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures before and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who, who have been redeemed 
from the earth. So here, John hears a voice, right? The, the repetition pattern throughout Revelation is John sees something and then he hears something. And here he saw the lamb in 140,000, and then he hears a voice, a singular voice out of heaven, like a roar of many waters. This is a loud voice, right? It's a thunderous voice. It's loud, and yet this voice was also beautiful because it sounded like the sound of harpists playing on their hearts. In other words, John, what he was hearing there, what it turns out that he was hearing was really a myriad of voices singing a new song, singing together in unison as one voice. And it was loud, and yet it was beautiful. Right, everyone. I don't know. If, I don't know if everyone was in two. I don't know if they're harmonizing. They're going, you know, different octaves and all that. But they were singing together, a new song. It was beautiful. This new song here began back in Revelation, chapter five, verse nine to ten. Back in Revelation chapter five, verse nine to ten, this is their song that they're singing. It says here, and they sang a new song saying, worthy, worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seal for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. What a glorious son, son to the Lamb of God. The one who is worthy to break the seals. This is a song of worship. And even though all this terrible judgment has been happening, right, the seven seals breaking, we have the seven sound of trumpets going on. We have the judgment of God coming upon the earth, destroying a third of the earth. We have Satan, the beast. We have them rising up, taking over, persecuting Christians. Throughout all of that, this song still sings. It's a song that will echo through eternity. It's a song that if we today, those of us who are believers, we will sing with them as well. It's a wonderful song. As they sing, as everyone joins together and singing, we see here everyone singing, right? It's not just under 44,000, but it's also the four living creatures. It's also the elders that's up there. Everyone's joining together to sing this new song. And as we move on, we see, we see here in verse 4. See here in verse 4. Now describes to us who is this 144,000. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed. Or in the NASB, I'm reading the ESV, the NASB says these have been purchased from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. I want to focus in on that. See, the word here for redeem is indeed the word purchase. And this is important for us to understand that this 144,000, which again represents the church, represents the believers, right? Israel leading all the believers, all the people of God, they were purchased. 
They were purchased. It was a reminder that we become the people of God, not just because we volunteer ourselves. No, there was a debt to be paid. It's a reminder that Christ died for us. That the lamb whom we identify ourselves with, that was a lamb who sacrifices life for us. We are purchased. We are purchased from that kind as first fruits toward God. And the word first fruits here is first fruits are the, the first crops. Right? Back then, when they when a Jewish when Israel was giving offering to God, they would collect the harvest together. And they will have many seasons of harvest. But the first fruits, which is typically the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the first fruits will gather and they were offered up to God, thanking God for what He has provided for them. Here, these have been purchased from mankind as first fruits. In other words, these are sacrificial sacrifices or the sacrificial offering made to God. This is worship to God. Thank you, Lord. James chapter 1, verse 18 emphasizes this same point. James chapter 1. It says, of his own will, this is the Father's, of God's own will, will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we, this is the church, we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's James 1, 18. And so the first fruits here are with, in other words, we are, it is us. We are now. The, the objects of worship. We are now the sacrificial offering to God. We worship God. And as we keep reading through this, it says here that no lie was found. They were blameless. So they, it's not like they were blameless because they, didn't, they, they weren't lying. They didn't lie because they were blameless. That's important. That the blood washes clean to be blameless. Therefore, we do not lie. Moving on now to verse 6. It says here, verse 6. Then I saw, whoops, not here. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. All right. And he said with a loud voice. Sorry, it should have been verse six to seven. He said, he said with a loud voice, "Fear God and give Him glory, because." Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship, and worship him who made earth, heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So here we have then an angel flying out. This is another angel. I was trying to look back to see which, who was the first angel that came out. I'm not completely sure. I think it was back in chapter 11. And, but for whatever it is, another angel came flying out. And this angel came with eternal gospel. The eternal gospel, a cable message. And this message was for all those who dwell on earth, to every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. In other words, this is a message for all people. Recognize that. The gospel is a message for all people. Not just us. Not just, not just us who are here. Us who, I don't know, we're gathered here. We come here to a Chinese church, and we most of us out here look the same. 
It was not, this gospel is not just for us, it's for everyone. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. In other words, this gospel demands a response from every single person. A response from every single person. Either you obey this message or you don't. And the message is this, fear God and give him glory. Worship him. You obey this message, or do you not? Moving on to verse 8. says, another angel, a second, so this is a different angel, follows saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And there's a lot to, to uncover here. When first we see the word Babylon, right? Babylon here is an evil, is an evil nation, right? Back back in Old Testament times, you guys know your Old Testament, Babylon was the empire that conquered, that conquered Jerusalem, that conquered Israel. Right? And it has destroyed Israel. And the, the, the people, the Israelites, were in exile for 70 years within Babylon. So, in, in the Jewish minds, and, and I believe this is written to, Christ, to the church back then, and many of them were probably from Jewish backgrounds. In their minds, when you read Babylon the Great, they probably have images of their history. So, what is Babylon here, though? Because Obviously, the Babylonian Empire doesn't exist now. Will it come back in the future? Well, so there's, again, two different interpretations here. One, this is, they believe that Babylon maybe perhaps represents Rome, and it's a cryptic name for Rome. So back then, the church, because the Roman Empire was, was conquering the land, and the Roman Empire was oppressing the church, they called the Roman Empire Babylon, as, you know, as, a, as just a cryptic name to call them that. Or just could have, or we can see this as a future evil world order. Just evil world order. So there, in other words, there's, there's many kinds of Babylons that we even see today that will continue on. But there's this one future world order that will come and dominate the world. And this world order will oppose God. You can, we can again see this in different ways, but I believe again, this, this I believe that we just don't really know is post is most likely just some kind of future nation or future world order that will oppose God. But we, but we do see what this what this Babylon does. First, we see this Babylon is described as a woman, and we know that Israel was described as a woman back in Rome, back in Revelation chapter twelve. And so we have here an opposing woman, right? A different woman. This woman was a temptress. Right, this woman said, may all nations drink of the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. 
And this unbelievers here drinks from her cup. In other words, they seek satisfaction from her promises. They're drunk on her teachings, on her passions. It's, it's a wonder to think that it's described here. The passion of her sexual immorality shows to us how sexual immorality, sexual purity matters so much to our spiritual lives. It matters so much. There, there's something about a sense of purity that truly represents our faith. More on that later. But let's continue reading. We see here God's wrath then. The third angel comes out, and God's wrath then is poured out. And the, the God's wrath here is also called a cup, a cup of his anger. This word anger here is actually the same word for passion here, right? It's the same word. And what this tells us here, what this, what's being emphasized here is that God's cup of passion, his wrathful passion, his anger being poured out is going to be much greater, much more severe than this cup that this woman, this Babylon offers. Why is it greater? Because God's wrath here is poured out in full strength. The emphasis here is that it's, it's, it's pure. It's not diluted. It's not watered down. It is the full strength of God's righteous judgment. I mean, if you think about this, how scary this actually is. Because that means whatever we imagine to be the wrath of God, whatever that looks like today, whatever we read in the Old Testament, or even what we saw about the wrath of God with the seven seals and the seven trumpets earlier in Revelation, all of that was God actually holding back his wrath. This here is the full strength. This here is utter destruction. And it says here that this wrath will be poured out. And those who, those who worship the beast in this image, they will be tormented. They will be tormented, and their smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. They will have no rest day or night. You see, unbelievers, they will, when people die, when unbelievers die, their, their souls don't just get destroyed. They're not just annihilated, cease from existence. But they will face this eternal punishment. And that should weigh heavily upon us. To understand that what they're going to face is eternal agony, torment, day and night, with no rest. I mean, think about the torments of your own life. Think about the pains that you go through. Whatever pain it may be, maybe physical, maybe mental, maybe emotional, that pain leaves you no rest, right? It makes you weary. It makes you tired. Imagine having that day and night, forever and ever. That is the fate of all those who worship peace. Moving on to verse 12 says here, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. 
Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Here we see the saints. In contrast to those who worship the beast in this image, here we have the saints, and what they do is they keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And it says here that instead of torment, they will receive blessing. They'll receive blessing. That blessing looks like rest, peace, eternal contentment with God. That's that's this this passage. As we kind of walk through, we we'll kind of try to explain bits and pieces of it. What was this passage about? What is this whole passage about? Well, what we see here in this passage are different contrasts, and when you guys have seen that, I can kind of point them out a little bit here and there. And there, there are three different contrasts that I want us to specifically see. First, obviously, the, the, the contrast of their marks, the dueling marks, right? Again, it begins with who you worship. Do you have the mark of the beast or do you have the mark of Christ? Who do you identify with? Whom do you worship? Because who do you worship will define you. Who you worship will define you. It will. I mean, it, it, it determines your life, it determines your joy. You worship something because you find joy in that object you're worshiping or in that person you're worshiping. Take, for instance, think about fandom. Like if you're a fan of something, you're a fan of a team, right? I'm, I'm wearing a daughter's shirt, had a first game today, they won, quite happy, but I'm sad about the Lakers. Don't want to talk about them. But yeah, it, I mean, just a quick story. Like I was. Me and my wife were, were expecting the sun, and we are, um, and we, we've been building a baby registry for them. And and my wife, uh, her name is Sharon. She 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 was she been doing most of the work with the registry because you know I have no idea what a baby need or want. Um, but she turned to me, she asked me, "What do you want for the registry?" And I looked at her, I'm like, "Well, anything with a Lakers symbol on it, of course, duh. That's the only thing I want for my son. He just has to wear something with Lakers on it." And so she went up and down some Lakers onesie. Hopefully someone buys that off our registry. Someone does it, I'm buying it still. Um, in any case, right? But so anyways, fandom, right? If, if you're a fan of something, you're a fan of someone, you identify, you end up identifying with that person or with that team, right? You, you end up dressing like them. You dress in their, their jerseys. If you're listening to your music, you're listening to them talk, and, you look, and that's all you do, you just listen to a lot of them, you end up talking like them. Right? For some for preachers, we always they, they, they tell me in school, and even the pastors here tell me, if I listen to someone a lot over and over again, I'm gonna sound like them in my preaching. Right? We we are we all always mimic the people we worship, the people we idolize. And when what you worship and when who you worship receives more glory, what happens? You get joy, right? When, when the Lakers win the championship, and I said when, when the Lakers win during their championship, they're going, they get the glory, and the fans get the joy. They didn't do anything, they just cheered, and yet they're joyful for them. In the same way, when we worship God, when we worship anything else, when they receive the glory, it becomes our joy. 
And it's why we say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Because our glorifying God and our joy are deeply connected. So it begins with this. Who do you worship? Which mark is on your forehead? Second thing we see here is dueling characteristics. The worshiper of beasts, there are ones who fall alive, right? They're deceived by the Antichrist, they're falling alive. They're the ones who defile themselves with sexual morality. They're the ones who embrace the teaching of this world. But those who worship God, there's a whole different description for them. They follow the Lamb. They follow the Lamb who was slain. says here that they kept themselves pure, therefore they were virgins. So they I mean, this doesn't necessarily mean they, they never marry, but they, they didn't commit any sexual morality. They were pure. And, and not only did they not get deceived, but they have no lie coming out of their mouth. They didn't lie at all. See how different, vastly different they are? And, and, and we see here that the worshipers of God, they didn't go around just they didn't go around marveling at the beast. Instead, what they kept doing is they kept singing a new song, a song of salvation about the truth of God. You see, what you worship or whom you worship will change your behavior, will change the character of your heart, will change how you're like. There's an emphasis here about sexual morality. I want to talk a little bit about this because it's a struggle. It's a struggle these days for both, all of us, whether you're a man or a woman, sexual morality is a struggle. We don't talk too much about pornography here because it shouldn't be like a main topic that we do every week, but it is a real topic that we should address. Pornography or romantic TV shows, trashy TV shows, not going to give any names, but you, you know them. And what, they, what ends up happening when you watch these things when you watch these kind of images, these kind of videos, these kind of stories, what happens, they'll end up training you or corrupting you, corrupting your mind. I mean, I personally experienced something like this too. It, it impacts the way you view the other gender, where you look upon the opposite gender differently and, and you see them less as people the more as objects that should give you satisfaction. I mean, you don't mean it that way. In mind, you're telling yourself, no, that's not what, how I see the opposite gender, but it, there's the subconscious level that, that I trained you in. Like that's the first thing that comes up to your head and you're trying to fight it. And so you end up viewing people differently. You see, when we talk about stuff like this, it is indeed, we're talking about worship here. Sexual morality, sexual purity is related deeply to your worship. What we see here is that we are all imitators. We become more and more like what we see, what we keep our eyes on. I mean, I mean, think about how they're describing the beast here, right? Anyone who worships the beast, it's not just that any, they didn't, they, the scripture here doesn't say just they worship the beast. It says they worship the beast and its image. It's image. Is there, there's something about image that captivates our attention, that, that captivates our eyes, and we feast our eyes on images. 
images are dangerous. It is why God tells us, do not carve an image of him. Instead, know God through what? His word. Images are different because images, it, it tricks our eyes. It makes our eyes think the physical reality is all that there is. That a physical reality is what gives us pleasure forever. That we're trying to find rest here in this world. And so let me ask you, are you careful with what you consume with your eyes digitally? With your, whatever shows you watch, where, wherever your eyes look upon, are you careful what you consume? Not just in our eyes. I understand we also hear a lot of things. But do you, are you careful what you consume in academically, influentially, what you listen to on the radio, on your podcasts? Are you, are you also asking yourself, are you examining yourself critically? Not just what your eyes feed a piece upon, but also are you listening to your own thoughts? And are you analyzing those things? Right? Not just about what you hear, but you analyzing, thinking critically about your own thoughts, your own emotions, your own desires? Do you, do you parse them? Do you, do you try to dig them? You try to say, you know, why am I thinking like this? Why do I suddenly have this urge? Why do I have this desire? Do you dig through it? And see where it comes from. And determine whether or not these desires, these thoughts, are they biblical or not? Are they things you should have? Are you, hold, are you holding them against God's word as your standard? See, again, all these things, they don't just come because they are just there. They come because of who you worship. Who, in the end, do you worship? And then we see here dueling destinies. The worshiper of the beast and its image will face torment forever. They will not rest day or night. The worshiper of the lamb will indeed find eternal rest. You see the beast, the unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, they're deceiving this world. They're, they're telling this world, they're promising this world that there is no rest, that they're causing the world that there is rest that can be found here now on this earth. You just gotta just listen to them. Just, just have this thing. Just take what you want. You see, their, their promises are fake. Their promises are false. They're as fake as an impossible bird. They're, they're, just, they're just wrong. Right? And death here, death here is important. Note here, look at me at verse, verse 13. It says here, blessed are the dead. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. There, there's something about death here that's important. You see, death reveals the true nature of their promises. When people die, we typically say stuff like rest in peace, right? Rip. And, but understand this. Without God, there is no rest in death. Death. Death will only reward you rest if you are faithful to Christ. And this is important. This is important for us. It's important for us to even understand within the context of this passage. Let me point to you 
Let me show you another just amazing theme of this passage, and then we'll close our time here. It says here, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Why is it so important for John to write this? Why did the angel say, write this? Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. If you turn back a page, and we look back upon the first piece here in, in chapter 13. We look at Revelation chapter 13. It says here in verse 7, this is what it says. The beast, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. To make war on the saints and to conquer them. What does that mean? What does it mean that the beast was allowed to make war upon the saints and to conquer them? We get a better understanding of this in verse 15. Revelation 13, 15 says, it's began the beast, uh, this is the, sign of, uh, the second beast that came from the land. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast. So this is, again, this is those who did not worship the images, those who are believers, the saints, and might cause those who do not worship the image of the beast to be slain, to be killed, to die. In other words, what it means to conquer the saints, to make war on the saints, to conquer them, is to kill them. So that they will face death. But here's where we can have hope in this passage. Here's where we have hope. It says it was allowed. It was allowed, meaning the beast here couldn't just make war suddenly upon the saints. It was allowed because God was the one who said, okay, do it. You are now allowed to kill my people. Why did God allow that? Because God knows death will not be the final stage for his people. And this is where we see the hope comes. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. In other words, blessed are the dead saints from now on. Why? Because now they can rest from their labors. They can rest. And the question comes down to this. What do you put your trust in? Do you trust in the beast? Or do you trust in the God who is the sovereign God who controls all these, including what Satan and the beast do? Who has a plan even beyond this physical life? Who will you follow? Who will you worship? I want us to consider just how wonderful this truth is. You see, Revelation was written during time, again, when Jerusalem was destroyed. And the church was scattered, right? The church was spread out everybody because the church was being persecuted. Right? The emperor Nero was lighting Christians up as torches. They were being persecuted. And so Rome during this time was indeed a type of Babylon to the church. An oppressive empire that sought to silence the gospel message. Jerusalem was destroyed. And everything that God seen has promised, right? Everything that God seen had promised through his son seems to have failed. 
Imagine what the church is thinking. They're looking left and right. They're seeing brothers and sisters dying. They're wondering these promises of peace, these promises of blessing, these promises of redemption, restoration of God's kingdom. Where is it? Where are these promises? Where is the hope in all this? And we look upon our own society today as a church, and we, we too, is, we can lose hope, and we sometimes we can forget just how dangerous our faith is. Right? How, we, we can wonder to ourselves, how can a death 2,000 years ago, right, how can Jesus' death upon the cross impact us now, so many years later? And if God hasn't saved the world already, how do we know that he will still save it? I think we all can struggle with that now. In other words, why should I keep trusting God? Why should I keep following Him? Why should I keep worshiping Him? You see here, the church received this revelation from John. They get a glimpse of the future. They see the Lamb. Yes, the Lamb looks like a Lamb that was slain, but the Lamb is standing alive. Standing where? On Mount Zion. Jerusalem was destroyed, but yet Mount Zion exists in this vision. Babylon fallen, the world judged, and what are the saints doing? Yes, they may be dead, but they're still singing. And they're singing this new song for all eternity. How great and awesome is this picture for this church? How encouraging it must be for them to see this vision, to hear about it. How comforting it must be for them to know that God is still with them. That God's promises still holds true. That God reminds the church here, then, back then. God reminds the church that hope is still alive. That because God has a plan. And so God then is asking you to trust in him. Trust in him even when the entire world is telling you not to. To trust in God. Because God is saying to you right now, I will keep you to the end. And you will see my plan unfold. And you will rejoice in my glory, and my name will be yours. And so the call to worship here is indeed a call to endure, a call to persevere, to say to the opposition, to say to this world, you may hate me, you may hate my God, you may seek to silence me, counsel me, you may seek to destroy me, even kill me, but my God is my song. Now we'll sing his praise for eternity and because he is worthy. And so I will worship God alone. And so the big idea here is to worship God. The new song, for when he receives his glory, you will receive your rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything that you have given to us, we thank you for especially giving us the Lamb of God, the one who was slain, the one who has redeemed us for all eternity, the song that we will sing, worthy is the Lamb. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving us this eternal salvation, for defeating death on the cross. So, God, I pray for each one of us here, wherever we may be in our walks. I pray for those who maybe 
they're here and they haven't accepted you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Father, that we will ask ourselves, all of us, whom do we worship? Is it you, Lord? And if it's not, Lord, I pray that you'll help us see why you are worthy of all worship. Help us see why your son, Jesus Christ, is is indeed the Lord and Savior. He is indeed our treasure and our reward. Help us, Lord. Help us to fight to worship you more. Help us glorify your name so that we may have joy. Help us know you. Lord, thank you for your word. For your word promises us eternal lives. pray all this in your name. Amen.